Friends, we are indeed in Acts chapter 4, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. And I'm going to read for us, it's just a small paragraph, a summary of the church, but it is beautiful. So I'm in Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would make us today a church of great power and great grace. We are not able to do that. You are able to do that because it is your power and it is your grace that moves through us and changes us. Do that in our midst for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Now, friends, I think that Acts 4 is to the church what Proverbs 31 is to the wife, okay? That's my analogy. Acts 4 is to the church what Proverbs 31 is to the wife. Uh, Wives in here who are familiar with Proverbs 31 knows that that sounds like perfection personified. I mean, what wife opens up Proverbs 31 and says, yeah, that, that nails me. I mean, I'm totally the kind of person that does real estate actions and plants a vineyard and is spoken well of at the city gates. I mean, it's really intimidating as a wife to read Proverbs 31, unless you're my wife who nails it all. But everybody else, I mean, they can't live up to that. I think the same thing is kind of true for Acts chapter four, right? You open this thing up and you think about our church and you think about what we do and then you see the earliest church and it kind of feels like this perfection that none of us are going to be able to live up to. It kind of feels like a child putting on this oversized coat and walking around and pretending of being like the church and we just fall so far of this image. I mean, who can possibly do this? Anybody feel that with me today? Anybody have that sense that we should just skip ahead to Ananias and Sapphira and get to people being struck dead for lying in the church? And it's like, there, now we're in comfortable territory of kind of what we deserve to hear. Well, if you think that, there's two thoughts I want to give you about how we approach a passage like this that sounds really too good to be true. And number one is that the church is never this good. The church is never this good. I mean, this is a a simple summary statement. We're going to get to that hard stuff, but the church was not all yard sales and kumbaya drum circles. I mean, there was real sin in the church, so much so the very next scene, Ananias and Sapphira lie to the Holy Spirit. They're struck dead. Imagine that happening in our church body. You know, the Smiths come to worship and they put something in the offering plate and boom, they're dead. Come back next week as we continue our series in the book of Acts. I mean, that was crazy. So don't get this like view of the church that's bigger than it ought to be. The church was never this good. But the second point is, of course, that God is always this good. I mean, don't sleep on 
resurrection power, resurrection grace in his church. He is able to do beyond what we imagine in our church body through his Holy Spirit. So the church might never be this good, but he is always this good and always this able. Our passage today, it summarizes the church, just like chapter two did. Now chapter four is giving us this like tight paragraph about the church. It doesn't use the word church. That word doesn't appear until chapter five, verse 11 for the first time in Acts. But it tells us that this is verse 32, the full number of those who believed. And so if this is all the believers gathered in one place, then then by definition, that is the church. And then it adds verse 33 and says that these are friends marked by great power and great grace. So if we think about a definition of the church, there are many good definitions that we could use, but let's use Acts for now, which is the church is a believing community of great power and great grace. That's what the church is, a believing community of great power and great grace. When you go out from here and somebody asks you where you attend church and you say cola prez and they say, tell me about it, you could say, well, we are a believing community of great power and great grace. And they're like, dude, I just wanted to know if you had gluten-free bread for communion. And you can say, we do, but we are also a community of great power and great grace. That's what the church is. That's who we are. Like it or not, that is the description of the church. And so I want to look at each of those in turn, start with great power, and then turn briefly to great grace and understand what's here. Look at verse 33. It tells us that with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Now, I'm going to totally abuse the Greek language this morning, so don't hold this against me. But when I see, and we've got a, first, a couple of first-year Greek students in here who are going to just frown at me when I say this. When I see that phrase, great power, it's actually the Greek words mega, which we all know that word in English, and dunamē, which is where we get the English word dynamite. And I remember my professor saying, please don't do this, and here I go, and you'd be ashamed to see me now. But I can't help but seeing that phrase of great power and translating it mega dynamite. I mean, that's what the church is. She is a church of mega dynamite, like this supernatural power within her. And that's precisely what Jesus said she would be in the Great Commission in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And you will receive what? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And it was that power that has come upon the church that actually unnerved the religious teachers who were suspicious about what was happening and who pulled Peter aside and said to him, by what power have you done this thing? What's this power at work in this body? It seems that everybody, Christian and non-Christian alike, is being exposed to what Paul will call in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 19, the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. So there's power here. There's power here in this paragraph and there's power here in this room if we are indeed a spirit-filled church. And the question is, power for what? What do we do with this power? What is it and what can it do 
in us and through us and for God's glory. And one of the chief things I see power doing in our passage is changing lives. This is a life-changing power. That life-changing power is all over this paragraph. Now, there's another power that's at work in the world that every single one of us, whether we're a Christian or not, we've been exposed to this power. It is a great and it is a grave power. It's a dark power that we are acquainted with. It's the power of sin and death. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about this power, uses the exact same Greek word. You have dunamē. you have the power of sin and death, which teaches us that in ourselves, we are powerless against this kind of power that it works against us to be ruled by the flesh, ruled by sin, unable and unwilling to change ourselves and to live any different. In fact, before we become a believer, we are in essence the anti-church. We are a, a community, a chaotic community, unbelieving community without this power and without this grace. We are powerless against greed and selfishness and materialism and disunity. We can't help but break apart from each other. We can't help but guard the things that we have very close, our possessions and our time and ourselves. We can't help but be envious of the things that we don't have that other have, others have. We are deeply influenced by this dark power. And now behold, in the gospel, human beings who were once dominated by the power of sin and death now are filled with this new kind of power to break those chains, be liberated, and to live for God. That is a supernatural power in our midst. How do we get from being these selfish souls to being these sacrificial saints? What what happens in a person to make that kind of change? That is the power of the gospel. That's what Paul means when he says in Romans chapter one, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation. It is real, deep, life-changing power. Now, I want to make us aware of something because it's a temptation for anybody who begins sniffing around the church and sniffing around religion because power is attractive to everybody. It's attractive to those outside the church. It's attractive to those inside the church. And there are actually some, and we're going to read about some in the book of Acts, who are interested in power without being interested in the gospel. Like they want life change, they want to improve themselves, and they felt helpless to do that, but they want to get it without any kind of allegiance to Christ through faith. So give me just enough power to break this addiction in my life that is costing me so much. Or give me just a little power to stop thinking so much about myself. Or give me just a little bit of power to be the best me that I can possibly be. In other words, I want power without the source. I want change without the heavenly change agent. I want strength without coming to the Savior. And if I want that, I don't need Jesus. I need the law. 
if I can get a hold of the law, the Ten Commandments, the law, the do's and don'ts of religion, I can read that, I can study that, I can white-knuckle obedience and make micro-changes in my life, and I can have a little bit of power without ever coming to faith in Christ. I want you to see two scenes that we've just covered in the last few weeks. One that's dominated by the law and one that's dominated by the gospel. And you tell me what kind of power you want access to. We said that Peter and John were on their way to the temple and in Acts chapter three, they were uh, going for afternoon prayer and as was the custom to be done, there were those who were in need sitting outside of the temple and those who walked into the temple were dropping coins in the hands of people like the man born lame and some of that was animated by the law. It's an understanding that this is what I do so that God will approve of me and I'm giving away my coins to the poor. And then you blink and get a scene from the church that is straight selling her possessions to give abundantly and generously to those in need. The law, obedience to the law, it makes me feel guilty. Like I should always be doing something else so that God will see my earnestness. He'll approve of me. He'll like me. And so based on that motivation from the law, I drop a couple of coins in the palm of somebody in need. And then religion has its opiate effect. And I feel a little bit better about myself. And I can go about my day and not realize that I am just as terrifyingly far from God as when I first began. That's the law. That's what the law can do for you today. But friends, behold the power of the gospel. Who's got time for handing out quarters when God did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all? That bears in me this incredible gospel power to take the idols in my life, possessions that I held so dear, to sell them and to give them away, and then to consider that but a small and happy price to pay of gratitude for my Savior. That is the power of the gospel in a believer. That is gospel power. It's the power of Jesus to grab a life that is bent inward on itself, focused on nothing but itself, and open it up to this brand new life in Christ. Our passage says that the apostles were able to walk out and testify with great power. And their testimony had power, Because the moment they sit with somebody and draw out a bridge illustration on the back of a papyrus receipt, they were standing with this whole community in Jerusalem that was known to their neighbors, like I know the Smiths, and I know what kind of selfish people they are, and I heard that they sold that beautiful piece of property and gave it to people in need, And you better believe that that testimony from the apostles fell with great power, backed by the stories of changed lives. That's the power of the gospel. That's the power of God in his church. Well, church, not only do we have this great life-changing power, but we also have great grace. 
verse 33 continues. It says, in addition to power, great grace was upon them all. Great grace was just pouring out on the church body. But here's my question. How does Luke, the author of Acts, actually know that? I mean, I thought grace was invisible and intangible. I thought you couldn't really see it or taste it or touch it. So how does Luke know whether there was a lot of grace or a little bit of grace or no grace at all? Has he kind of overstepped his role as a historian to tell us something about the spiritual realm? Now, I think if Luke were here to defend himself, he would say, you're right, I can't see grace, and I can't actually see the grace that extends from God to the church, but here's what I did see. I saw lavish, generous, unmerited grace from church member to church member, and wherever you see that kind of grace, I assume that God's grace is not far behind. Do you believe that? Jesus said that the world will know that you are Christians by your love. Like they'll see the love that you have for each other and then they'll know something about a love they can't see from God to the world. They'll see your grace that you have for each other and they'll know something that they couldn't otherwise see which is the grace of God to us and that is the evident testimony of God in his church. Luke is saying, I'll tell you two things that I saw and I dare you to tell me that God's grace wasn't everywhere in this body. I saw number one, heart and soul unity and numbers two, property selling generosity. We're not going to talk about these, but number one, he said, I saw unity, verse 32. Get this, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Church, can you imagine being joined in a body, one heart and soul? Generosity, verses 34 and 35, there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. I'm seeing unity, I'm seeing generosity, and God's grace is all over this thing. The illustration of this that comes up in several places of the Bible, and it's an experiment you can do at home with your kids, is grab a wine glass and put it on a table and open up a bottle of wine and let it breathe for a minute. And then I want you to upend the bottle of wine into the single wine glass and see what happens. As that thing fills up and runneth over onto the table and down off onto everybody who is surrounded, you see a glimmer of the incredible grace of God that has filled us, overflowing, cannot stay within us, so that we can't help but bear out these good fruits in our lives, radical unity with one another, radical generosity to those who have anything in need, and that, friends, is the power and the grace of God in his church. We're going to talk about those two things next week. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, make us this kind of body of great power and great grace. 
I praise you that to be called to these two things, we don't have to muster them in our own strength and try to be a more powerful church and and try to, to the best of our ability, be a more gracious church, but they start by drinking deeply from you, your power, your grace in us. So we ask that you would move through us in such a way. In Jesus' name, amen.